All right, let's go on then into the book of Jeremiah. We did get down to chapter 20. <clears throat> I spent quite a little time in 19 last time showing that God is going to shatter our society, our culture, and the church like a potter's vessel into many, many pieces, and it cannot be put back together again short of God taking a hand. And that being stiff-necked and hard-hearted is not an attitude to be in. We must hear God's Word, as it says in verse 15 of chapter 19. Now let's get in then with that brief uh, review, chapter 20. It says, Now Pasher, the son of Immer the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Eternal, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. <clears throat> Jeremiah was going about preaching that the society, the city, would be shattered like a potter's vessel. Then the government heard about it. <laughs> the government doesn't like to hear things like that. Keep that in mind for the future, just as a principle. Then Pasher smote Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. He didn't really investigate to see if what Jeremiah was saying was true or not. He just decided to punish the messenger, or as we use the expression, kill the messenger. Historically, when in some societies, if someone brought bad news, they simply killed the guy that was sent to deliver it. Maybe that was one way commanders out in the field got rid of people they didn't like. Here's some bad news. I don't like so-and-so. I'll send him with a message. And I, uh, I got that taken care of. <clears throat> so he decided to put Jeremiah in the stocks. You know, lock their feet and their hands in a piece of wood so they can't get away and people can spit and curse and swear at them and needle them and jab them and do anything they want to to them. So the stocks were in the high gate of Benjamin, <clears throat> which was by the house of the Eternal. And it came to pass on the morrow that Pasher brought forth Jeremiah out of the stocks. Then said Jeremiah to him, The Eternal has not called your name Pasher, but Magor Mizabah a bit. Uh, Pasher means liberation. It could mean in today's church, freedom, grace, no law as worldwide has gone. Liberation. We're free. We don't have to do anything. God didn't like that name. So he changed it to a name that means fear roundabout. Fear all around. So instead of liberation and freedom, that culture was about to go into great fear. The depths of fear. For thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and your eyes shall behold it. And I will give an all Judah to the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive into Babylon, and shall slay them with the sword. That would create fear round about. Fear everywhere. Not freedom, not liberty, but fear. What is the beginning of wisdom? 
Fear the eternal. Fear God. That's when you're beginning to be wise. It's when you have a great awe, respect, and even fear of God to disobey anything that God says. We must be very careful. God wants us to be careful. To live carefully. These people were not living carefully. They were living casually. That is one of the big problems with Laodicea in the end time, is that we would live casually or lukewarmly or not being afraid, not fearing retribution, thinking everything is okay and we have it made. That's the way these people were living. They felt liberated. Everything was okay. They could do as they pleased. Worldwide has taken it to that extent. Anything goes. Grace, grace, grace. Not with God. The fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom. <clears throat> so he says, you will represent fear. Your government will represent fear. He was interfering with God's prophet. And God didn't like that. And he, and he said that the things Jeremiah was preaching would be carried out and he would be a symbol of that. Verse 5, Moreover, I will deliver all the strength of this city and all the labors thereof. These things, Daniel 12 says, will happen when the power of God's people, his holy people, has been dispersed. God is taking power and might and strength from the church. You divide and conquer. And God has decreed that we be divided, that our strength be removed, so that we are unable to do much of anything. Now, he is going to give that power back to his two witnesses, according to Revelation 11, to go out with strength and power. But in the meantime, no power, no strength. So he'll divide, he will deliver the strength, the labor, and all the precious things thereof, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah will I give into the hand of their enemies, which shall spoil them and take them and carry them to Babylon. So he hits at our strength as a nation, our strength as a church. He hits at all of the materiality that we have come to enjoy. Materiality is the big thing in America today. And it became that far too much with us in the church, and we became discontented with enough food, clothing, and shelter to get through the day. We wanted much, much, much more to be rich, rich, to be wealthy, to live the American dream. And that is not to be our focus. We are focused on, or should be, obeying and serving God and fulfilling His purposes and he will take care of the rest. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't work. We don't work. We don't eat, he says, very clearly. So, working is something we should do. And, in fact, he instructs those who would do the building of the latter temple, at the end of Zephaniah, chapter 2, to work. Don't let your hands be slack, but to work. So, we are here to be here and working. 
perhaps I need to get more organized and find ways to get more people involved so that all can be fulfilling that purpose, not just working spiritually, but working to accomplish what we're here to do in a better, more organized, quicker way so that it can be done faster. There are those, I heard a comment recently, I don't know where it came from, well, they never do anything right around here the first time. Emphasis on they. They never do anything right the first time. What happened to we? What happened to thee? What gives you the right to sit around and watch what other people do and criticize it and say they always do it wrong? Well, if you can determine how it is that they are always doing it wrong, why don't you come forward and show us ahead of time how to do it right the first time? I wonder. I remember a time when we were out in the cold and the wet and the mud trying to move a mobile home. Someone comes running up saying, you're using the wrong tractor for that. Don't you think I know it was the wrong tractor for that? It was the only tractor I had. And we were getting it done slowly. And we got it done in the cold and the mud and the rain and snow. But not with help from those who wanted to let us know as we were trying to move that thing that we had the wrong tractor. I didn't have time to consider that because the trailer was trying to get stuck in the mud and I needed to be real busy telling the guy which way to steer to try to get it in the right place. What tractor I was using at that moment, I could have cared less about. Yes, we were all wrong. That's all we had, and we used what we had to get the job done. Now, I can look at us here, and I might say to God, you're using the wrong people for this job. Couldn't I? Why didn't you send me some mighty and noble people? Why did you send me this bunch of weak, unnoble, base people? Or when David saw people coming out when he was hiding in the rocks, why did you send me those who were in debt, the misfits, the rebels? No. Why did you send me these? David, it is to my glory that I sent you these to do a job, and when it gets done with my help, it will be to my glory. Oh, now we understand why God sent you me and me you. None of us are mighty and noble. None of us are totally educated. None of us have all the answers. And we certainly don't have all the money needed 
to buy all the equipment that would be the best equipment for the job we're trying to do. There are probably better ways to raise arches than old men and old women and children trying to lift them up without getting cut or killed. There probably are. But this is what we have. And we're doing okay, and we're getting it done. Thank you. Slowly, sometimes inefficiently, sometimes without proper equipment or knowledge, but we're getting it done. And you can either help or you can hinder. You can help or you can criticize. You can say they all you want until you're gone. Or we can become we. It's up to us. We can do it. We can work together and we can accomplish it. And if you don't want to help, then they will anyway. So we have some personal decisions to make. How did I get from here to there? Even preachers need to vent once in a while. Let's see, I could think I could probably think of a lot of examples I could use here. Not necessary. It's not necessary. Let's just understand the principle. And I'm sorry if I sometimes get busy working and uh, don't organize it enough to get enough people working. But there are a lot of people who are working. There really are. And I appreciate it, and I know God does. And the more we pull together, though, instead of against one another, the more efficient we'll become and the better we'll get it done. And it's better to do it that way than sometimes pulling against each other. <coughs> Well, we were in verse 5 talking about how we can get our focus wrong and we can get it on our strength and our power and materiality. And what we are doing here is not based upon those things. They're based upon the power of God. And they're based upon us finding the true spiritual riches and putting that first and then doing the best we can physically and crying out to God to give us the help we need to finish the job that he has given us to do because we can't do it all on our own. That's just a fact. So if we get our emphasis wrong, we'll be like the rest of the church and like the rest of society and culture. And we'll be carried away to Babylon. Strange, isn't it? If you're unwilling to come out of Babylon, God's going to send you there in captivity. And you, Pasher, or as his new name is, you who stood for liberation, and were named liberation, and all that dwell in your house shall go into captivity, and you shall come to Babylon, and there you shall die, and shall be buried there, you and all your friends, to whom you have prophesied lies. Jeremiah was telling the way it really is, and Pasher was telling him, hey, everything's going to be all right. Everything's just going to be fine. Don't worry about it. God didn't like that. Verse 7, O Eternal, here's, here's a change in thought, uh, Jeremiah's reaction to all this, it preached and preached and preached and was not being listened to for the most part, and then they put him in stocks, and he was jeered at and hated and made fun of. 
And then he came before the rulers and uh, basically had to repeat the same message. You know, this is coming whether you guys like it or not. But it got to him. Verse 7, he cried out to God, O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. God, you just told me to come preach. You told me to give this message. You, you didn't tell me the whole story. You kind of deceived me about this. I didn't know they were going to do this to me. He's kind of feeling a little sorry for himself here. And he's putting a little bit of it on God. I am a derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For since I spoke, since I began to give these messages you gave me, since I spoke, I cried out. I cried, violence and spoil. That was the message God told him to give. Violence and spoil. War. Captivity. <clears throat> because the word of the eternal was made a reproach to me and a derision daily. So God told him to preach it. He went out and preached it. And he became the enemy. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. Jeremiah, I ain't going to preach anymore, he said. I've had it. I'm done. Done speaking. I can't stand it. I can't take it. I didn't know this came with a territory. He wasn't going to get off that easy, though. It says, but his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. You know, I'm not going to preach, I'm not going to teach anymore, but the message God had put inside him was burning him up inside. He could not relax, he could not back off, there was too much emotion built up there, and it had to come out. He wanted to run, as Moses tried to run, as Jonah tried to run, but he couldn't do it. He felt compelled. I was weary with sitting back and trying to do this. I couldn't sit still, he said. I had to do it. So God put that in him. So it was an emotional battle that Jeremiah was fighting. He was doing the work of God, but he was being emotionally hurt anyway. Now, isn't that the same pressure that we all feel? We are trying, in a world bent on going Satan's way, to do it God's way. We can be ridiculed and laughed at, and eventually we're going to become the enemy, aren't we? And they will try to destroy us all. Because Satan doesn't want us to successfully fulfill the plan of God and the purpose that he has put in each and every one of us. He doesn't want to see it happen. So... We are under a great deal of emotional and spiritual pressure. It isn't so much physical pressure. We've talked about this before. It's emotional and spiritual that is the real battle. That's what we fight with. We must obey God. We have to serve God. And yet we don't see yet as much answer from Him as we would like to see. And we receive trouble and difficulties and trials and what we are trying to accomplish to live maturely and perfectly spiritually 
is a very hard process. It can be disheartening and discouraging. It can be disheartening and discouraging in a way for me to have to come before us, myself included, with this message week after week. And it can be very difficult, I'm sure, to listen to week after week. But why does God say it over and over and over and over again? It is something that is difficult. It is hard for it to penetrate. It is hard to reach our hearts. It is hard to get behind our stiff, stubborn necks. It is hard for us to turn to God with our whole hearts. And it is something, obviously, that God says has to be done. He always uses the expression, I sent the prophets early. I sent them early in the morning. As if this is a very difficult job and you better get started early on it because it's going to be all day. It's difficult. It's hard. So, Jeremiah got a little frustrated at times, as did Isaiah, as did all those who tried to speak God's word to a culture and a church that were going the wrong way. Verse 10, For I heard the defaming of many, fear on every side. Report, say they, and we will report it. All my friends, those familiar with me, watched for my faltering, saying, Perhaps he will be enticed, and we shall prevail against him, and we shall take our revenge on him. They were sitting around waiting for Jeremiah to make a mistake, to back off or falter, and they would have their little laugh and ha-ha about Jeremiah. They were just waiting to catch him, to get him. But the Lord is with me as a mighty, terrible one. Therefore my persecutors shall stumble, and they shall not prevail. They shall be greatly ashamed, for they shall not prosper. Their everlasting confusion shall never be forgotten. That's something we need to understand and to learn. Is that if God is doing something, whoever he has chosen to do that, no matter how many warts they have, no matter how many faults they have, God has chosen them to do it. And he will back them in doing it. And those who protest and who stand against and who laugh at will be the ones who are destroyed. Now, we experienced that with Herbert Armstrong. There were those who were naysayers. There are those who have even written books trying to point out all the man's faults, all his mistakes, all his sins. There is still out there on the Internet, or there are still websites, who are spending most of their time and energy decrying and trying to make light of any and everything the man did including us, 
who have survived the destruction of Worldwide. Now, these people who are laughing today are going to themselves be destroyed. God's work will not be destroyed. In spite of all the naysaying that they did before he died, and ever since thing that they've done since, I firmly believe that Herbert Armstrong fulfilled the commission that God gave him to do. Worse than all, sins, faults, mistakes, wrong directions, misuse of money, anything you want to name, and he did have his problems. I think we have to be realistic. He still finished the job God gave him to do. As a matter of self-assessment, he said before he died, my work is finished, get the church ready, to Joe Takash and the rest of the ministry. He realized he had finished what God gave him to do. He did not, through most of his ministry, even understand his calling. He thought it was to preach the gospel to the world as a witness, and the world would come to an end. And it wasn't. His commission was Matthew 19, or Matthew 28, 19, and 20. To go to all nations and baptize members of all of them, make disciples of them. That was his commission, and he accomplished it. Under him, many were called. And now, through destruction, few are being chosen. So, I don't care what you say about the man, how many books you want to write, you will be made a liar. Because God used him for his purposes, and I believe he'll be in the kingdom of God. Because he did accomplish what he should have done in spite of himself. Now, any of us who do anything for God will do it in spite of ourselves. There is no man yet whom God has ever used who is perfect, or who is anywhere even near perfect. None. Herbert Armstrong was not anywhere near perfect. And according to the Apostle Paul, <clears throat> he himself was far from perfect. Things he wanted to do, he didn't do. Things he didn't want to do, he did. And he said he was of all men most miserable if he didn't have some hope from somewhere. And who would deliver him from that body of sin? And he said he was the chiefest of sinners. Now let me ask you a question. Was Paul lying? <coughs> I truly doubt it. He assessed his life, his emotions, his mind, and felt that he was the chiefest of sinners. So Paul must have had, at that point in time, some serious problems with his mind, with his emotions, with his feelings, with his spirituality. Something was wrong. And yet God used him mightily. And it's to God's glory that you could take someone like Paul, who persecuted, killed, and cursed Christians, and turn him into a leading apostle in the early New Testament church. Now, that's the glory of God. And those weren't mighty and noble people then either. Most of them were just plain old fishermen. 
Most of you have not been around commercial fishermen. I have, having lived in Alaska for some years, been around quite a few commercial fishermen. And I will not comment further than to say that as a breed, as a profession, they are not mighty and noble. I will not say what they are, but it is not mighty and noble. <coughs> Some of them are very nice people, don't get me wrong. But they're just fishermen. <coughs> and that's the kind of people God calls to use. And you and I can take great hope and thankfulness in that. Because none of us amount to much. So, if someone is trying to do God's work, be careful what you say. Be careful what stance you take, because it could come back on you. Because God was with Jeremiah. Okay, verse 12. But, O Lord of hosts, that try the righteous, and see the reins in the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for unto you have I opened my cause. Jeremiah said, I did what you told me. Now I'm in trouble. They put me in stocks. They laughed at me. And his troubles weren't over. He'll go, in, he'll go into a pit of manure uh, just a few chapters hence. <coughs> but he said, basically, judge between them and me, Father. I'm doing what you say. They won't do what you say. So you told me to deliver this message. I've had it with them. Go ahead and do it. That's basically what his attitude was. Verse 13, Sing to the Eternal. Praise you, the Eternal. For he has delivered the soul of the poor from the hand of evildoers. Now, he hadn't been yet delivered when he said this in his prayer. Came through his thoughts, his mind, his process. He remembers scripture, perhaps. There was some available, and there was. And he spoke this to God because those promises were there from God. And Jeremiah was reminding God that he had promised to do that and that he would. But in the meantime, he was feeling pretty low. He said, I, I have that hope. I know you made these promises. But right here and now, things aren't going so well. And we might say the same thing. You've made all these promises, and promises I've talked about in announcements, about the thing that we are doing right here. But those haven't all come yet, have they? And we haven't done all we're supposed to do yet, have we? So, even though we can look at those promises and take heart and hope in them, we look at ourselves and our situation, and it isn't all too shiny yet. Let's continue and see that. How did he feel? Verse 14. Cursed be the day wherein I was born. You're feeling pretty low when you can honestly say, Cursed be my birthday. Now, most people want to be proud of their birthday, and they want to celebrate their birthday, and how what a fine, wonderful, upstanding person they are, and they deserve to celebrate themselves. Is that what God wants us doing? Celebrating ourselves? 
I think not. He wants us to be humble and meek. Cursed be the day wherein I was born. If we all look honestly at ourselves, can we honestly say that since the day I was born, the world is a far better place? Can we on our 20th or 30th or 40th or 80th or 90th birthday say, man, the world is better off since I was born? Put it in those terms, your birthday doesn't sound so important, does it? And I look around, what have I accomplished? I could die, and other than those who might have to live with me or near me, it wouldn't even make a blip. Probably wouldn't even make the evening news if you or I died. And it wouldn't be too long before those who knew us forgot us. So it works. We're just a blip on the screen that disappears so very, very quickly. Like a pebble tossed in water, makes very small waves and disappears. And then, not only have we not made a wonderful positive impression upon the world and made things better for everyone, we can probably look back on a lifetime of waste and wantonness and sin and selfishness Lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, and envy, and all those good things. So what do we have really to celebrate? And then when you pile all these problems on top that Jeremiah was having, that is the problems that beset every Christian, and whom the anger of Satan and the whole world is going to turn to someday, there's not a whole lot to brag about, is there? And when that kind of pressure comes, on top of the pressure we already feel spiritually to do what needs to be done, there may be days when we'll say, cursed be the day wherein I was born. I know I personally have felt that off and on at times throughout my life. Why am I here? What good am I? Well, none, really. Let not the day wherein my mother bore me be blessed. Now, does that tell you to celebrate your birthday? Don't let the day my mother bore me be blessed. <clears throat> Cursed be the man who brought tidings to my father, saying, A man-child is born to you, making him very glad. Isn't it funny how when we're born it makes our parents very glad? Our father's told he has a new son. It makes him so happy. And then how difficult it is for the next 70 years, plus or minus, to keep that parent happy that we were born that day. And let that man be as the cities which the eternal overthrew, and repented not. And let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noontide. Because he slew me not from the womb. Then better if my dad, instead of popping a cork and having a drink, telling the world I have a new son, Jeremiah said it had been better if he had just cut my head off. Or that my mother might have been my grave and her womb to be always great with me. Just always stayed in the womb. 
Maybe he was writing this from a fetal position, I don't know. Sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? Wish I'd have just stayed in the womb. Let my mother always feel like that. She'd have come to hating. <laughs> Talk to any woman in her eighth or ninth month and see if she wants to keep that forever. <clears throat> you know, you really are feeling pretty pretty low when you just, I wish I'd have never crawled out of the womb. Wish I'd have just stayed there. You think we got trouble? We're not there yet. We got bigger trouble to come. Praise be to God. Wherefore came I forth out of the womb to see labor and sorrow, that my days should be consumed with shame. Jeremiah had a little pity party, but you know, there's a certain humility and meekness that has to come from our failings and from the difficulties we face. And I don't think that we should all feel the way he felt when he wrote this all the time by any means. It would be a very depressing place to be. Everybody wishing they could go back to the womb. How are you doing today? Well, I wish I could go back to the womb. How are you doing today? Wish my dad had killed me the day I was born. That could get a little depressing, you know. Instead of good morning, why am I here? God doesn't want us to be in that attitude. He wants us to get over it. But on the other hand, when conditions bring us to that point emotionally, uh, we need to deal with it and have the proper humility and meekness that God would intend us to have as we go through life. Let's see, i got a late start. I know I do have lots of tape left. Let's see if we can get through chapter 21. I'll try not to spend as much time as I did on 20. <clears throat> the word which came to Jeremiah from the Eternal when King Zedekiah sent to him Pasher, or Liberation, the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest said, Inquire, I pray you, of the Eternal for us. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. So, in spite of Jeremiah's preaching, in spite of them taking him captive and decrying him and putting him down, there was a certain amount of understanding that Jeremiah had some connection with God. So, they being quote-unquote Christians, wanted in some form or another to seek God's Word, to know what God says is going to happen. That is within all human beings to want to know the future. Some people will turn to God and His Word. Others will turn to demonism and the occult and try to have seances. There are many different ways people try to determine the future. Crystal balls, Ouija, Ouija boards, all kinds of things that they might use, which are abominable and testable to God. You want to know the future? Look at your life. It's very simple. There's always cause and effect. Examine your life, your way of living, and you can determine your personal future. You'll be either made a son of God and live forever, reigning in the universe, or you're going to the lake of fire and die. You don't repent, change, overcome, and follow God's way. 
Now, our biggest problem there is that we're such a mixture. You know, we're not perfect, and we're not perfect sinners either. We're not totally one way or the other. We're a mishmash of obedience and sin in the middle. Therefore, it's hard for us to understand and determine what our judgments before God might be. But our attitude should be, do the best I can to live by every word of God and pray to him for forgiveness and mercy. And that's what Jesus Christ's sacrifice is all about. Because we simply cannot live perfectly, righteously before God. It's not in our nature. But we can know what is going to be the future of the world, what is going to happen here through the Word of God. And I think it's pretty safe to predict that America and its empire are going down and going down soon. Because cause and effect is always there. And we are a nation that is going wholeheartedly into sin now. And God will only sit still so long that he'll do Sodom and Gomorrah on us. Or some degree of it. So we want to know. Well, it's in here. He's telling us right here what the future of our country and the future of 90% of the church will be. And he's giving us opportunity to escape that. We will respond to him. Verse 3, Then said Jeremiah to them, Thus shall you say to Zedekiah. It was very clear to Jeremiah, based on the way they were living, what God was going to do. In a sense, a no-brainer. Thus says the eternal God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands. In other words, your tanks, your planes, your bombs, will do you no good. These weapons in your hands wherewith you fight against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans, which besiege you without the walls, and I will assemble them into the midst of this city. They're coming in. They're going to besiege you, and it is going to be successful. And I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and in fury and in great wrath. So when this nation falls, and as this church falls, it is falling because of the great wrath of God. He is doing it to us. The book of Lamentations follows the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah laments that God is having to do this to us. But God is doing it. And I will smite the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. And afterwards, says the Eternal, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people, and such as are left in this city, from the pestilence, from the sword, and from the famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those that seek their life. And he shall smite them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them, neither have pity, nor have mercy. That's what's coming. And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, not Jeremiah's words, God's word. Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Isn't that interesting? Back in Deuteronomy, before Jeremiah was ever born, God said, I have set before you life 
and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. God was very positive about it, so there's two ways. You can go either way. Choose life. So, what Jeremiah was saying wasn't new. What I'm telling you today is not new. God has set before us the way of life and the way of death. We must choose life. He that abides in this city shall die by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. But he that goes out and falls to the Chaldeans that besiege you, he shall live, and his life shall be unto him for a prey. You'll have no chance in the city. You might have some chance in the country. He'll make another comment about that, though, later. For I have set my face against this city for evil and not for good, says the Eternal. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. So from the head to the foot, we are sick and unsound, and he's going to start by destroying that at the top. Until it gets down to those that are in the city, and ultimately those that are in the field and in the plain, unless they are under the specific protection of God. We'll see that in a moment. Verse 11, And touching the house of the king of Judah, say, Hear you the word of the Eternal. O house of David, thus says the Eternal, Execute judgment in the morning, and deliver him that is spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor, lest my fury go out like fire and burn that, burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. So he says, have true judgments, kind, merciful judgments. Don't allow anyone to be oppressed. Take care of your neighbor. Take care of your friends. Make sure they don't fall into oppression. Behold, I am against you, inhabitant of the valley and rock of the plain. So not just the city. Says the Eternal, which say, Who shall come down against us, or who shall enter into our habitations? There are many people in this country today who are moving out of the cities thinking that in northern Idaho or eastern Oregon or places like that, that it will be safe. There is a big website, I uh, can't think of the guy's name out of Flagstaff, Phoenix. Uh, I've read quite a bit of his stuff. <clears throat> and he gives some good advice in a sense, but his whole thing is move at least a gas tank away from a metropolitan area. Because when the trouble comes to the cities, people will flee the city and they'll overrun the countryside looking for food, and you need to be at least a gas tank away so they can't quite get to you. So there's a lot of that kind of thinking in our country today from people who realize the handwriting is on the wall and that our country is about to go down. They see it coming. They know it. And they know that the cities are going to be where the intensity of the violence and the takeover first occurs. And they think they can get away by going into the mountains of northern Idaho or other places. That's one of the key ones they pick. But even though it will be worse in the city, God says, I'm against you, O inhabitant of the valley and rock of the plain. And you think you'll be safe out there. 
Don't come against us, or we'll enter into our habitations. Remember that verse back, oh, when was it? Two or three chapters back, where he said he would send fishers. Maybe it was clear back in 16. Yeah, verse 16. Behold, I will send for many fishers, says the Eternal, and they shall fish them. After it will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. For my eyes are upon all their ways. They are not hid from my face. Neither is their iniquity hid from my eyes. There is no place you can go that will be safe. Because God is going to send fishers and hunters. And if you're not living according to his ways, you will be fished and hunted until you are found and captured. Unless you are behind a wall of fire that is the protection of Almighty God. So don't think just because you're out in the country and not in the city that that is the answer. The answer is holiness. The answer is righteousness. The answer is separating the precious from the vile, the clean from the unclean, and the good from the evil. But I will punish you according to the fruit of your doings, says the Eternal, and I will kindle a fire in the forest thereof, and it shall devour all things round about it. So if you think you can go hide in the forest, go out on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington, get out there among the big trees and the ferns and hide in a hole in the rock, God says you can't do it. Repentance is the only answer. The only way we'll get protection is from God is through repentance, holiness, and righteousness. It's going to be the only answer. There's nowhere you can go that you'll be saved otherwise. So if you think you can find a place apart from God, you're just kidding yourself. We must be in God's good graces. The church as a whole is not in the good graces of God right now. It is still being divided. It is still being torn apart. And only those who turn to God with their whole hearts will be protected. So, he has set before us life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life.